The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host and I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph A. Pipa Jr., the president of Greenville Seminary, also professor of historical and systematic theology. Dr. Pipa, thank you for joining me in the studio. Thank you, Zach. It's good to be with you as always. We have our monthly installment of Faith and Practice, this beloved segment where Dr. Piper addresses questions that you, our listeners, send to us. And before we launch into our questions, I would ask you, Dr. Piper, to please open us with a word of prayer. All right, Zach. Gracious God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you and praise your holy name, for you are absolutely wonderful full of majesty and greatness, splendor. You're the God of gods, the Lord of lords, incomparably God and none like you. We thank you that you're our God who stooped to make himself known to us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ and revealed in Scripture, illumined by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that in your Scriptures, everything that we need uh, to know you and how to live and that your spirit is our instructor. We ask that he would illumine our understanding this day as we deal with these very important doctrinal and practical questions. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the questions, I do want to give a couple of announcements from the seminary community. We have entered into reading week for our students, which means that finals and final papers are right around the corner. So we covet your prayers as a seminary community for these men who are uh, trying to finish their semester strong. And so far, things have been sailing pretty smoothly. In fact, we did get one question. Uh, Tony Rogers wants to know if he pulled an A on his final paper, Dr. Piper. I doubt it. (laughs) Tony, there's your answer, brother. Uh, But please keep our men in your prayers and also pray for our year-end fundraising initiatives. We have a year-end appeal that we've sent out, and uh, many of you will probably be receiving it in your physical mailboxes as well as in your email inboxes. Please prayerfully consider supporting the seminary. The support you give to Greenville Seminary also supports our podcast. Uh, Without that support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do, and we greatly appreciate Uh, whatever you could send us. Now, we also have winter classes coming up in January, and information about that is available. I do have a registration form for non-students. Some of you have already enrolled or at least expressed interest in our Presbyterian Church History class, but there are three other courses that should be of interest to you, homiletics and Reformed Pastor, and the class I'm taking this year, Reformed Worship, which is taught by Dr. Piper. So if you want more information about that, please email us at info at gpts.edu. Again, that's info at gpts.edu, or just contact somebody that you know that's here at the seminary, and we'll be able to get you more information about registering. We'd love to have you here with us. Now, Dr. Pipe, I want to move into our first question. This is a timely question coming from the land down under. Our um, dearly beloved Liberty Overton asks, from Geelong, Victoria, Australia, should Christians celebrate Christmas? Well, Zach, it is a timely question, and there's probably, at least I understand, three approaches uh, to Christmas. And I will, at some point, have a pamphlet available, an article I wrote a number of years ago, Uh, to help uh, defend the position that I take. Uh, The three views are nothing at all, a religious observance, and a cultural uh, holiday. So there are those following the regular principle who say that we should uh, not do anything with respect to Christmas. We do not know the date of the advent, and it is basically... Uh, was a Roman Catholic celebration that was based on some paganism, syncretism, and so just simply uh, don't take any notice of it whatsoever. The other extreme are those that uh, actually celebrate Christmas as a religious uh, observance, uh, and this will go anywhere from what people would do in their home to what churches do. I think that uh, on the Lord's Day, regardless of one's view, jumping ahead here, but so I won't forget it, uh, I think it's wise to preach on the Advent at that season. 
I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones said that we would be very foolish at Advent and Resurrection seasons not to preach on those topics because it's the two times a year people come to church thinking about the topic on which we're going to preach. It's pastorally wise then to uh, preach uh, a timely exegetical sermon on the Incarnation, <laughs> some aspect of it, or on uh, the Resurrection. So regardless of how one approaches the family or church observance, I think it is wise. In terms of Advent hymns, I think we should sing them all year round, uh, and our hymn selection should always be uh, related to uh, the text on which we're preaching. But there are those churches that make a, a lot larger deal out of Christmas in, in one of a, of a couple of ways. There are those that actually will have special activities on the Lord's Day service. Now, I think that the regulative principle would rule that out regardless of one's view of the religious observance of Christmas uh, simply because they introduce things into the worship service or in Christmas trees in, in the uh, worship center, things, things like that. But if a church, the church has the liberty that wants to have, uh, what is it, carols and uh, scripture lessons and carols lessons or and scriptures and or whatever on, a, on another night um, and use that as an outreach opportunity. Our church does that. As long as it's not on the Lord's Day evening, I think that that um, is uh, surely a church is free to do that, not to make it mandatory for its uh, members. Uh, but uh, if that's what a church wants to do, and they don't get that confused with the Lord's Day and, and corporate worship. I personally don't attend those kind of services. I might go to the lessons if I were around when it happened, but I just, I'm very much of a, a Westminsterian at that point and simply don't participate in those types of things. But I do now, when think you say churches that you're... Or have the liberty uh, to do it. Now, when you say, sorry to begin to cut you off there. You that did cut me off. That you didn't begin to cut me off. <laughs> that you're Westminsterian on that point, what do you mean the by that? The regulative principle does not allow for any days of, of celebration outside the Lord's Day. Okay. That's why I say I think the church has the liberty to do it, but not to require it. And that's, and that's grounded in, at least as far as a Westminsterian approach to this issue is concerned, that's grounded in shorter catechism teaching on the fourth commandment right well also no liberty of conscience no liberty of conscience more grounded there that if it is that if the church is free to do it they're not free to require me to do it because it would be um, making a requirement that would be uh, extra biblical with respect to religious activity so I'm free to go if I want to but I must be free not to go I don't want to. So these kinds of services would not be forbidden by chapter 21, paragraph If they're not on one. the Lord's Day. If they're not and on they're the not Lord's Day. And they're not doing things. I was talking to a man this weekend. They at least moved the uh, Advent candle thing before the call to worship. And so that that's good. But... That another church. What's its significance? And... Uh, should we do anything in family worship or private worship that we would not do in corporate worship? There are things we do in corporate worship that we couldn't do. So, you know, the, the lessons and carols, you're singing and you're reading Scripture, uh, that's surely uh, not improper. Yeah, because you can say, do that in any context. As outreach, it can be very a very good program. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you get into Advent candles and stuff like that, whether in or out of the worship service, I think that that is violating the regular principle of worship. So even private worship, I don't like candles. Uh, uh, and there's other things that, I mean, uh, well, we don't have a lot of time. Let's go. So the, my view is that I, we deserve a cultural holiday. We celebrate the incarnation, resurrection every Lord's Day. And so at Christmas time, because my wife and I are romantics and we enjoy tradition, we have a Christmas tree and we have decorations, but you'll find no religious decoration in our home, and particularly angels and such, because they're very um, godly and glorious creatures, and it, I think it demeans them a great deal to hang them on a Christmas tree or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, but we enjoy the traditions and the gift giving and the things like that. So, my approach is so it is a cultural holiday that's a tradition, and I think again the. The scripture allows for such an observance as long as you don't incorporate into it any religious. So we're not celebrating 
the Advent. Simply, this is a time for family to be together, have nice activities that we do as a family, create those family memories. It's a seasonal occasion. Yeah, tr- traditions and, and such as that. So, and our decor, our seasonal decor, right. just like we might put out umbrellas or flamingos yeah, some in the summer. some would say, well, it's not a proper season. Uh, but it's just a good time for a traditional family activities to get the family together. So those are the three views. I think a Christian is, in a sense, has liberty for any of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would not think a church has a liberty to have a to do these things in the Lord's Day service. I mean, to have a regular service and preach on the Advent, uh, that I think is wise. But to uh, I know there, there was a church uh, with which I'm very familiar that really was fairly well regulated in its worship, except they'd bring in an orchestra for resur- Easter Sunday and Christmas Sunday. So they're obviously saying that these two Sundays are different from, and that's a big mistake that we make, to make one Lord's Day different from another. That they all should be treated the same. So preach on the theme. The hymns should always match the theme. I like to sing Advent hymns, although probably half of them are not probably proper to sing. Yeah, some of them, even in the Trinity hymnal. Or... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't there. I didn't hear angels, and they're not coming around my house and stuff like that. And <laughs> I didn't go see a baby lying in the manger, and then they, they get worse after that. The, the old medieval and ancient church Advent hymns, Luther's, those are, are very good. And I preached at a church Sunday morning, and the Gettys had an Advent hymn that was a little hard to sing if you never had heard it before, but yeah. it was it was good. So there's good Advent hymns, but again, let's just sing them all the time. I probably wandered a lot on this question, but... Uh, If you boiled it down, the celebration of some kind of seasonal holiday is adiaphora, as long as you don't inject it with religious meaning, and as long as a church isn't prescribing it and binding the consciences of its people. Right. That's good, Jack. All right. Thanks, Dr. Piper, and thank you, Liberty, for the thoughtful question. Enjoy, next... the, enjoy it down under there, Liberty, when it's nice and hot on Christmas Day. It's summer down under, right? Yeah. Uh, next question comes from Chad Warner, who's a little bit closer to home. He's here in Greenville, South Carolina, and he asks, What may we do in self-defense? And what does Luke six twenty-seven to 31 say about self-defense? Thank you, Chad. You always ask good questions. Luke 6 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Now, I think when we read those sections in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to realize that Christ is not talking about attacks that are endangering us or our property. He's talking about minor irritations. Now, no, it's not a minor irritation if somebody slaps you. It's, the temper boils up quickly. But he's just simply saying, don't retaliate as long as it's not um, something that's endangering you or your property. But I believe that uh, our instruction in the uh, larger catechism's uh, exposition of uh, the Sixth Commandment is uh, very important here as we think about self-defense. And we have to... um, The duties... Sixth Commandment, excuse me. uh, What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust, taking away the life of any. By just defense, therefore, against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God. And see there you see patient under God's hand, but uh, a just defense against violence, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, etc. Um, peaceable, mild, forbearance, which would be what Christ is dealing with. Bearing and forgiving injuries, requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, 
protecting and defending the innocent. And then what is forbidden, taking away life of ourselves or others except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. We go back to the law then, Chad, and we see that uh, if one enters your property in order to, to do violence, um, and you don't know what they intend to do to you, then it's absolutely important that you do whatever you need to do to defend yourself and your family. Uh, but then the law is very clear when it gets to property. If they stolen something from you and are leaving your house, then you don't have the right to kill them because life uh, is much more important than property. So you don't reclaim your property in that manner. And you don't retaliate in kind if it's not an, uh, an, uh, a physical injury that is being inflicted on you. But it's a sin not to defend ourselves. I think it was John Piper that made a big deal out of Christians not exercising self-defense. But in fact, I think it's a sin uh, not to do so. That's why my wife and I have our concealed weapons permit. That's why now today, after what happened in Texas, I preached at two churches in the last two weeks. Both of them lock their doors after the service begins. And there are people who are armed uh, on the premises. And uh, uh, an usher must open the door to let someone in. Uh, and that's simply being wise in, in today's climate. Uh, and actually, the insurance company at the church you attend uh, lowered the insurance rate when the uh, session allowed people to, um, to carry. So I, I think that's important, and I think that's the distinction, Chad, that we need to make. Now, if, if anybody's listening and comes from a Covenanter background and you weren't too terribly pleased with our Christmas answer, you might be pleased at this quote that I'm about to read from uh, the, the great Samuel Rutherford in Lex Rex, chapter, question 31, which deals with self-defense. In fact, he asks, whether or no self-defense against any unjust violence offered to the life be warranted by God's law and the law of nature and nations. And he says at one point, there is tutela vitoi proxima et remota, a mere and immediate defense of our life and a remote or immediate defense when there is no actual invasion made by a man seeking our life, we are not to use violent reoffending. And then he talks about David and Saul, except in the case of necessity. The magistrate, in case of necessity, may kill the malefactor, though his uh, maleficus do not put him in that case, that he hath and not now the image of God. Now prudence and light of grace determineth when we are to use violent reoffending for self preservation, it is not left to our pleasure. In a remote posture of self-defense, we are not to use violent reoffending, And he keeps on going, drawing from the example of David and Saul. And, of course, Rutherford's issue had to do a lot with abuses by the magistrate. By the magistrate. And he's talking about self-defense against an un basically what has rendered itself an unlawful uh, royal authority. But I think it applies in our well, I mean, the catechism uh, is clear cases, enough. We... Yep. You've got to protect yourself. That's part of fulfilling the Sixth Commandment. So... But I love turning to chapter 31 in Lex Rex whenever I think about that question. Our next question, again, thank you, Chad, comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil, and he asks, which words of comfort can a Christian say to a non-Christian who has lost a beloved relative? My friend once was put into a difficult situation. An unbeliever had lost her unbelieving father, and all of her friends were telling her that her father was in purgatory, that she could contact him again, that he was a good man, and that he had earned salvation all comfortable words, even if untrue. Knowing that my friend was a true Christian, they asked his opinion, and he provided them with a biblical answer. Purgatory doesn't exist. She couldn't contact her father anymore. And if her father did not believe in Christ as his only Savior, then he was not saved. At this point, he was called a monster without sentiments, and the girl started to cry. So what should be a good approach when comforting an unbelieving person during mourning time? Well, Lucas, that person got between, put between a rock and a hard place. Um, it's best to avoid answering a question at a time like that, uh, which your friend wasn't when he was asked uh, that question in front of her. I think I probably would have tried to say something like, you know, that these are very important issues. Let's get together in a couple of weeks and, and talk about this because you had so much that was going on there. In terms of what you say to a, a person, 
I simply say, you know, that God is uh, holy, wise, and just. He does all things perfectly well. It's not our responsibility to put anybody into hell. And unless they've made a church-owned credible profession of faith, it's not our job to put them into heaven. If they've made a credible profession of faith, been admitted to the Lord's table, then I think the Bible allows us to speak confidently of, uh, of, of hope when we speak to the family. If there's been no Christian, and we know that Manassas made, uh, was converted on his deathbed. Uh, we don't know what God does in the hearts of people, and so we simply uh, say we just commend them to the Lord God. But then later on, you want to sit down and say, let me answer that question because it's very important. Uh, let me, let's just go to the Bible uh, and uh, you know, purgatory does not exist. Now, again, it's not Roman Catholic doctrine that anybody in purgatory can have contact with people here on earth. That is pure spiritism. Uh, and so you could start there. You know, I don't think that that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. There's no more contact. But now, so he could have said that at that point, if they're Roman Catholics, to simply say, uh, well, you know, the Roman Church does not teach um, that there's any further contact. That is called um, spiritism or uh, other terms that are all forbidden by the Roman Church and the Bible. Um, and then I would put it positively. There is no purgatory. Anybody that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is immediately in heaven. And that's where I would have stopped at that particular point. But you're you're, put, you're caught off guard in those kind of situations, and if you're not thought about it ahead of time, which is why the question is very good, Lucas, because we can think about it ahead of time and uh, try to answer. So what I always try to say is if a person's in trusting Christ, they're in heaven. And no, there's not a purgatory, and that's a, that's a relief. Uh, and no, there's no contact with the dead after they're dead. You could say that in those moments and maybe not sound like a monster. We don't want to sound like monsters. No. Because we're not monsters. We're men. Our next question comes from Gerun Tell, and she asks, I heard a moving story of how the family of a boy who was killed in a crime donated his heart to a girl they had never met. Had she not received a new heart, she would not have had very long to live. Should we avoid post-mortem organ or any body part donation? Does donating our body for medical purposes disrespect the body? Are there reasons against cremation applicable to the reasons against post-mortem organ donation? And this actually relates to another question on cremation right. later on. Well, we'll do that one as well. Yeah, so we'll, we'll handle these in omnibus. The other question on cremation is from Holly Sharping of Wichita, Kansas, who simply asks, cremation, yes or no? What about Christians buried at sea or dying in fires, if no? Okay, these are very important, and I actually was just dealing with this question, I think, in my Introduction to Reformed Theology class <coughs> this past Wednesday. Um, let's answer the question from the from the backwards back forward and remind ourselves of what happens to the soul and body at death and again our catechism is just glorious here as it teaches us that the soul uh, is immediately holy and uh, beholds the triune God the body remaining in communion with Christ is buried in the expectation of the resurrection. Now, all bodies are going to turn to dust and ashes. And we need to know that because our Savior is the God-man, that he is omniscient in his person. And as the omniscient one, he knows every particle, every piece of DNA of every person who has or will ever live. And that's the body that's going to be raised on the day of resurrection. So when John Wycliffe's body was dug up by the papist, burned, and then cast in the Thames River, it really didn't matter because he's in union with Christ and our Savior, the God-man, uh, knows exactly, and not only knows, is, is remaining in union because it's this, our bodies are going to be raised. And so that's the place to start. Now that takes us then to why we treat the body uh, at death, with respect, it is the testimony that the body is asleep in Christ. It's not nothing. It's in union with Christ. That's why the Bible talks about those who are dead in Christ as being asleep in Christ. 
And because of that, we put the body in the ground with what the old Presbyterian Book of Common Prayer said, with the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And thus we treat the body when we can with great respect and dignity. Now, a person has to be buried at sea, particularly in the older days when you had no way to keep a body from uh, uh, grossly deteriorating and corrupting. But those, I mean, there was, there is in fact in the old, when you had the British Navy, the old Anglican prayer book has the burial at sea uh, service. It's very uh, dignified. And the body wrapped in sailcloth is treated surely as with much respect as a body that's shrouded and put in the ground. Those burned up in a fire or an explosion, well, we know, just like Wycliffe, those bodies remain in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of that, we teach against cremation. It's interesting, Abraham only owned one piece of land, and that was a a cemetery. He bought a place to bury his wife because of his belief in the resurrection. Now, we can back, or we can go then from that to uh, donor... um, organ donors, organ donation. I'm very much in favor of organ donations because I know regardless if, if I lend my heart to somebody or an eye or a liver or whatever, uh, uh, Christ continues to know where my part is and he knows where the dead part is that the other person lost. And at the resurrection, he's going to put it all back together. I'm not going to have the other person's heart. I'm not going to have my heart. I'm going to have my heart back, whatever that heart looks like. The Bible is very clear that it's going to be the substance of this body. So I have no difficulty uh, with organ donations. In fact, on my driver's license, I've got the thing there that uh, that's to be done. Now, it's a bit of a different step when we start talking about a body that is then um, given for um, post-mortem research. if I've got a rare disease and my body uh, tissues can help uh, further the treatment of that disease when I die from it, then, I, again, I'm not, you know, I take, take the parts you need and work on them. I don't need them right now. But bury my body with respect. Now, if cadavers are needed, there are enough uh, people who don't care about the body and death uh, and John Doe's and everything else, that I believe that that if it's not a professing Christian and uh, the family wants that body to be given for medical research, um, I think that's different. It's the Christian who's making the testimony about the body. Zach's got a big question mark on his face. To me, that seems analogous to saying in a completely different ethical situation that I'm not going to work on the Lord's Day because I care about the Lord's Day. I'm a believer. I know it's the Lord's Day. It belongs to Him. I'm going to commit it to worship and set aside my worldly employments and recreations. But hey, someone else who's not a believer wants to work on the Lord's Day, be my guest. But how's that analogous, Zach? You see, Cause, cause Lord's then, Day is a, is, a, is a pre-fall moral commandment, and it applies to all of the creation, and we love God's law. Uh, this is not an element of God's law respect to the body of the uh, unconverted. Uh, this is a body that's consigned to torment. The soul is sent by God directly into torment. That body's not put in the grave with any hope of anything but eternal destruction. And so it's simply working out of that, and that's why I would leave it to... For the medical cadavers question, the reason why I bring it up is because you used the terminology, if it's needed... And it will help other people, presumably also Christians. No, I said that. So that if my organs, not the body for the total body, mm-hmm. but if you need some organs for medical research, that's what I said. The body still has proper burial. It's when the whole body is cut up mm-hmm. and then thrown into a furnace uh, at the medical facility is what I was referring to by the medical research. Understand. So the, the, the organs of anybody. I mean, if the organ's useful, use it. But if you were the pastor of somebody, a sincere Christian who wanted to, felt strongly for some reason, wanted to donate their whole body to medical research, you would seek to really persuade them not to do that. Right, I would. And even to the point of saying, you would, you would say to them, it would be sinful of you to include uh, that in your last testament. If it's sinful of them, we then would have to discipline them if they did it. If and they I'm put that in their will. That so you wouldn't bind their conscience about no. it. 
Okay. No, I would not bind your conscience. All right, Same with cremation. Then you're still consistent. I think cremation is is uh, is wrong, but I don't think um, we should bring church discipline against someone who would do it. Now, of course, you know, as and actually your, your wife asked this question in class. In your case, where an unconverted family member asked for cremation, that's very different as well. I'm not going to oppose that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had family members that were, that were cremated. I actually preached a memorial service. But uh, you know that was their their will, and they didn't have my view of death or resurrection. Well, it's a valuable question. A now, what I will say is, there. if a Christian is cremated, there, there still needs to be a funeral service, and the ashes put in a burial site, not home on the mantle, or cast yeah. off into the waters, or thrown into the air, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And truth be told, my father, whom you know, I, I believe, going to mention any names. So. Well, I'm happy to mention my dad. He, I believe, he he died as a believer. Um, that's between him and the Lord ultimately, but he passed away halfway across the country and there was, and we had a burial plot already bought for him here. Well, not here, but up in Philadelphia. And there was no way to reasonably get his corpse from where he passed away to where the burial plot was without incurring about a 12 or $13,000 expense, which is how much it would cost to transport somebody's corpse through the air. And so... We uh, we elected to have him cremated where he died, and then we transported the ashes, which cost forty dollars, uh, and we had a you know a quiet burial service there at the graveside for him. We also had a memorial. It's okay. I have a friend church. who put his wife's body in the pickup truck and drove her to Pennsylvania from Texas. There are other ways to transport bodies. <laughs> well, that wasn't an option for us. Maybe I guess we, upon retrospect, maybe we should have done that. I don't know. Well, anyway, thank you for the question, Garen, and also thank you for the related question, Holly. I hope that was helpful to you. It was certainly helpful to me. Our next question comes from Jerry Diolio of Lehigh Acres, Florida, and Jerry asks a very thoughtful question. I was reading Justin Martyr's first apology, and he calls the Father unbegotten, the Son begotten, and states that the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Basic Trinitarian doctrine. What is the distinction between unbegotten and begotten, and how does that affect the triunity of God in the sense that all three are of the same essence if one is begotten and the other is unbegotten? Very good. The language that Justin Martyr uses comes right out of the uh, uh, Nicene Creed, Um, and basically it is in the uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. So that's asserted. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. God is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and Son. So it's exactly the same language uh, that uh, Justin Martyr uses. And if you are in a confessional church, then uh, that gives you a... uh, uh, an anchoring point, an Archimedean position. Um, so the language is quite appropriate. Now, there are two ways the language is understood, and either one is orthodox. The traditional understanding has been that the Father has eternally begotten the Son, so the Son has eternally been the begotten Son of the Father. And the Spirit has eternally proceeded from the Father and the Son. And that then relates their relationship of first, second, and third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their name arising from that threefold distinction. So they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory, but they've had this eternal way of existing. Now that's probably the primary opinion in the church. But Calvin uh, offered a, uh, a second way to understand this, and I happen to agree with Calvin here, and that is that the language refers only to their what we call their personal properties. In other words, um, this distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit, which means that they have the personal characteristics. The Father only is the Father, never the Son or the Spirit. The Son is only the Son, never the Father, the Spirit, the Spirit is only the Spirit, etc. And that this relationship is the eternal relationship. So in terms of their personal properties, the Father is the begetter, the Son is the begotten, and the Spirit is proceeding from the two. Now, Calvin took that position to argue for what we call the aseity of the Godhead, and so that each member of the Godhead has this eternal self 
existence. But either, well, either answer is uh, orthodox. And it's just, it's an, it's an interpretive issue of how to understand things like only begotten, proceeding from, and I think we have to give liberty on either side of that issue. A couple follow-up questions. One uh, basic, what does aseity mean? I said that, independent. They're, self ex- they're each self-existent. And then the second question is, Calvin's view does not open us up to things like the eternal subordination of no, the Son or anything No, just the like opposite. That. Because it's just the uh, economic thin relationship. The personal properties have to do with how they operate. This is why the Son was sent, not the Father, why the Son was begotten in the womb of the Virgin Mary, why the Spirit then is the one who anoints the church, anoints the Son, and whatever. So within their personal properties are their distinctive works. Now, when each one does his work, because they're one, God has working in each thing. But there are distinctive works. So the Father decreed the son is the doer the spirit's the perfectory we see it in creation we see it in redemption i would think that the eternal subordination problem of the son is coming out of the traditional understanding but again a misunder a misapplication of that to say there was ever any subordination uh, between the father and the son our next question comes from joseph gonzalez of clark's summit pennsylvania and joseph asks at which point does matthew 24 transition away from the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and toward the future coming of Christ. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, um, Marcellus Kick's Eschatology of Victory is really the book that helped me work my way through this passage uh, back uh, in the uh, 70s when I was preaching through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples asked Christ two questions as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. When will these things happen? That's the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? Actually, three things. And what's the sign of the end of the age? So Christ is answering the first two questions uh, right up through um, verse 35 of Matthew 24. It's quite clear there. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or before that, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And this generation needs to be understood as that generation then living. Now, some people take of that as the Jewish people uh, that shall not pass away before these things uh, take place. But uh, even earlier, you know, he said to uh, his um, apostles when he started talking about the kingdom before the Uh, transfiguration he says in Matthew 16 there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom and then coming in his kingdom takes place when he takes the three up on the mount of transfiguration eight days later but you see the transition in verse 36 of that day now he's answering the third part of the question the end of the age and that day no one an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And the Son now is speaking here either out of his human nature, or he's speaking as the person and saying it's not been given to him to reveal. Uh, and so that is the uncertainty of the end of the age. Now this interpretation, though, doesn't rule out the fact, in fact, I believe it insists that the principles involved in the first 34 verses of Matthew 24 are applicable. And so we learn about endurance and how to behave during persecution and and such as that. But um, this is all uh, focusing here on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which had huge covenant significance because this was the transition now uh, between the old covenant, the new covenant, and the full ushering in of the new covenant era. And then I approached the book of Revelation the same way, that that's dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the one beast, and the Roman Empire, the other. And so the book of Revelation, again, in terms of at least right up toward the end, is dealing with the victory of Christ over these enemies. But the principles that are involved there would be applicable to us in every age. And he also contacted me while you were answering the question just to say he's actually from New Jersey, but he's in Clark's Summit because he's attending a dispensationalist Bible college. But we know where he needs to transfer. Yes. Come on down, Joseph. The climate's a lot better. 
and the instruction will help you with these kind of questions. <laughs> Thank you again for Thank the you question, for listening brother. too. Yes. The next question comes from uh, through Twitter from Joshua from Canada under the the uh, handle Voice of Triumph or at the Great Commiss. When it comes to the study, teaching, and preaching on revival, why does it seem the Reformed community is so hesitant, cautious, and dissuasive of the precious reality of God drawing near? Have we allowed those who are careless with theology to craft our view of these seasons of grace? And I think he's probably referring to revivalism, uh, in, uh, coloring our view of revival. Yes. Well, and I think that's what's happened. Um, who am I going to call you? Comus? Oh, Joshua. Joshua. That's what's, going to, that's what's happening, Joshua. And it's been an overreaction. So in the Second Great Awakening, uh, people like Finney developed the philosophy that if revival, if revival produced certain consequences, if we do, if we reproduce the consequences, we will produce revival. So that led to, and that came out of a theology that was purely volitional. As long as you make a decision for Christ, you're saved. And so we get people to make decisions, and then they'll be saved, and revival then will come. And that it destroyed great, they talked in, in Upper State New York, the Burned Over District where there were these constant hundreds of professions of faith, and none of them were converted. And the place became gospel-hardened. And because of that, some Reformed people reject all forms of revival. And that's a mistake. These same people also, I think, confuse piety and pietism and really seem to reject to a great degree what we would talk about as experimental uh, Calvinism or heart Christianity. So that's one thing. But the second thing I'm a bit more sympathetic to, and that is some people who promote proper, well, it's not quite proper, who promote revival in a better sense, demean that God's ordinary way of operating is through the ordinary means of grace used day in and day out. And that all revival is is an intensification of the benefits of the means of grace. So our focus is to be on preaching, worship, the sacraments, the prayer meeting. And that is the normal way that people are going to grow. But then we pray, as you use the word God drawing near, that God would come and intensify the benefits of these activities. But some people are so committed to revival, they underplay the everyday, every Lord's Day activity of the church. So here at the seminary would uh, emphasize the means of grace, but we do pray regularly for revival. We just had a day of prayer and fasting that was just really well attended, and uh, the praying was just wonderful. And we plead with God to uh, revive his church, believing that that will simply be an intensification of the Spirit's blessing on the normal means of grace that we are very committed to. Very good. Thank you, Joshua. Now, our next question comes from Zach Dotson, currently of Walden, New York, but he's originally from Wise, Virginia. And he asks, how does one reconcile the spirituality of the church with Thornwell's desire for a soft establishment of Christ in the Confederacy and Dabney's fears of the secular education system in New England? It would seem the church had no right to speak on these matters if we are to hold to the spirituality of the church. I think you're confusing to a couple of issues. The spiritual of the church primarily addresses what we speak to in the pulpit, and that the church's role is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect. And so we're not, as a church, we're not out picking abortion clinics, we're not uh, involved in these other types of activities, but we are evangelizing, nurturing, preaching, worshiping God. And that's what the Confession of Faith says in 23.3. As a church. As a church. That means the church is not organizing political protests and things of the like. Okay. But as Christians, um, if, if you have the possibility of starting a new society, then you would want it to be Sabbatarian. And you would want to recognize the headship of Christ. And so as Christians who are involved in political and philosophical thinking, uh, yes, uh, we, we would want. I mean, if I had an opportunity tomorrow as a person to 
support a, uh, a political party that wanted to uh, establish uh, civil law on the basis of God's moral law, I'll support it. I've just, maybe some of you saw this just last week. The uh, Senate in Poland has just passed a law against Sunday openings. And they're going to, and two, 2020 will be absolute. Now it's twice a month, Sundays, and then once, and then none at all. That has to go to the second house. But uh, this is because actually of Roman Catholic influence uh, in uh, politics in Poland. So uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. Or preaching, um, I mean, you know, Dabney's piece on secular education is prescient. I mean, it's amazing he wrote that. I mean, Thornwell's pushing for public education. Dabney's not pushing for uh, the state to be promoting uh, education. He's simply saying that Christians ought to go together and uh, promote Christian education for their. For, so it was simply a Christian school movement, and he pointed out in that piece the dangers of public education. He saw it 150 years ahead of time. But it wasn't as part of his preaching ministry. It was no, it him was, writing that was, as an independent in Christian. And he yeah. would be, an, and so even now, now I tell people that it's your liberty where your child goes to school. But Deuteronomy 6 puts the onus particularly on you as a parent. And so if they're in the public school, you've got a greater responsibility to counteract the error they were teaching. But Dabney just writing as point of an educator is simply saying that uh, there's no neutrality. He was basically a Vantillian. There's no neutrality. And so you give the state the power of education. Of course, we've reaped now that which was sown. Uh, so... The weakness in Dabney's article, I think, is it doesn't allow for the, the non-Christian. What do you do with the education of these people? But just if Christians can band together to educate their children, non-Christians may band together. He was simply saying the state did not have that right or, or authority. Thank you for the question, Zach. Our next question comes from Riley Frace of Denver, Colorado. We're going to tie it in with a question from Cindy Fernandez of Los Alamos, New Mexico, because they're related. Riley's question is, how do we counsel our children who are teenagers or preteens to make a profession of faith? And this is connected to Cindy's question because hers is, um, Dr. Piper, please explain a practical benefit of having covenant children baptized. In conversing with friends of ours who are Reformed Baptists, we have been asked this, apart from obedience, is there any reason or any difference or any benefit to baptizing our children? If they raise their children the, quote, same, end quote, as we do as Presbyterians, but don't baptize them, what is the difference? Does God see them, the children, differently? Does this make a practical difference? Thank you, both of you. And Cindy and her husband are very close friends of mine, and it's nice to know that she listens to us. And um, Let's start with, the, with Cindy's question, uh, because I think uh, it gets the principles laid out, then how we deal with our children. And I find the answer uh, in Romans chapter 9. And actually, uh, we don't have a lot of time today, but I do have a recent sermon on sermon audio, I think. No, it was preached in Brazil with translation, so it might not be on sermon audio. But I think it's also in written form. Uh, on this text, because for me this text answered the question, Paul is wrestling now with the issue of, well, what about the old covenant people? Has God been unfaithful? What were the advantages, is how he phrased it in Romans chapter 3, of being a Jew? And so Paul, describing the old covenant people, says in chapter 4, 9 verse 4, who were Israelites to whom belongs adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Now I think we can say that if these benefits belonged to the old covenant people, who even at this point, the great majority of them had not taken hold of Christ, they are the covenant benefits that belong to all those. Because as the Bible teaches, there's one covenant of grace. There's not two different covenants of grace. So just briefly, we see that our children in the first place are members of the church. They're Israelites. And Paul's very clear about that here in, in Galatians uh, chapter 3 and chapter 6. Uh, and as Israelites, whose are the fathers? Uh, they are in a covenant succession. Our pastor pointed out last night that when Paul is writing to the Gentiles uh, about historical events in the Old Testament, he talks about our fathers, our fathers. 
And so we in the church are related as well to the fathers. They are our family members. So we're members of the church in a, um, a covenant succession with those who have gone before. And then he says that there is adoption. And so our children are raised as children of God, and that's why we can teach our children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We teach our children to pray. So we, in our baptismal vows, pray with them and uh, for them. And we teach them the beauty of the privilege of being uh, the adopted children of God. Uh, the glory, which is the presence of God. And so a covenant child uh, in the Christian family, we're, we're praying and seeing God do supernatural things. And in the church where God's presence comes in amidst us is one who lives in the presence of God has that uh, glory. The covenants then with uh, God legally binding himself, saying, I am your God and you are my people. The giving of the law, the church has the scriptures. It's not given, they're not given to the world. And particularly then, uh, our children are taught and catechized in the home and in the church. Uh, the service, the corporate worship has been revealed to us. And we um, then are worshiping in God's presence. And then the promises of the covenant um, the great promise, I am your God, you are my people, with the two sub-promises that God pardons our sins and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pierre Marcel distinguishes, he says, they don't inherit the, pro uh, the promise, they're heirs of, uh, they don't inherit the things, they're heirs of the promise. So they have the promises, and then they are to take hold of the promises. So in the rearing of our children, uh, from day one, when they begin to be conscious, even before then, we're praying with them, singing with them, reading Scripture in their presence. But as they become conscious, we begin to tell them that God's taken hold of them and brought them into covenant with himself, and that obligates them to take hold of God in the covenant. And so it's not something down the road, but from day one, we're saying, God has put you in this covenant. Now you must take him as your covenant Lord and master. And that's how we rear them. And so we're not looking for a specific decision. We're rearing them as members of the covenant. As the Westminster Directory of Worship says, that covenantally or federally, they're Christian. Now we press Christ upon them. What that means to take hold of God in the covenant is to be repenting and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And we do that from day one. When we do that, a number of our children will grow up never knowing a time they were not resting in Christ. Others, God will regenerate later. And at whatever point, though, I mean, when a little one, uh, Zach's got three little ones. Do you love Jesus to Judah? Yes. Abby, is Jesus your Savior? Yes. Zoe, are you trusting in Jesus to save you? Yes. That's a critical profession of faith as long as they're not absolutely rebelliously disobedient. Now, if they are, then we begin to press upon them. This is not how a covenant child lives. And if you have a new heart, you're not going to live this way. Now, let's talk about your heart, Abigail. Uh, have you been born again? Because you've been born again, you're going to want to obey your parents. It's not just enough to say, I love Jesus, but you love Jesus' Word, and Jesus' Word tells you to obey. Can you obey? Do you want to obey? Yes, Daddy. I'm sorry when I disobey. Then you look for their repentance. So they do disobey. We're all sinners. I disobey. When they disobey and they're corrected, do they eventually repent and show sorrow for sin? These are marks of grace. If they don't, then we begin to press on them the need of, of taking hold of Christ in repentance and faith. But if they are showing these marks, then we don't say, you've got to come to wait someday when you can make a decision. No, they're responding to the covenant. And so... Uh, now, I think Riley's question gets then to, at what point do we get them to the Lord's table? And then uh, what we're saying is that when they make this credible profession of faith, um, there are certain marks that I pastorally and in my own children looked for. I like to have them at least to memorize the children's catechism. Uh, I like to know that they can listen to a sermon in church. So I don't encourage note-taking except in children. So when a child would come to me, I would want to see that they're profiting from preaching. Because if they're not profiting from preaching, you'll get no profit from the Lord's Supper. And then I'm, I ask the child a question about, you know, tell me a sin that you have dealt with in your life. Are you struggling with? 
What does your baptism mean to you? And why do you want to come to the Lord's table? Now, a seven or eight or nine-year-old can answer those questions depending on, on where they are in their faith. So I don't put an age on it, but I do look for those kind of objective criteria. Do we have a double standard as far as opening up the, the table between our covenant children and then a new believer who's an adult? No. A new believer would have to be able to answer the same questions. That's a credible profession of faith. But would you expect a new believer to have even the children's catechism memorized before you welcome him or her to the table? I think that's a bit different. I would want them uh, mentored, have gone through some discipleship training. Some kind of catechesis. Yeah. But not necessarily memorizing a catechism. No. But with a child, I mean, you're trying to guard them against doing things that would not be profitable for them. And so that's a way that they are making sure they've, that you have filled in, you filled in the pieces. We have time for one more quick question. And I wanted to ask a question from Trent Still of Springfield, South Carolina, because it's one of Dr. Piper's favorite kinds of questions. What are your favorite non-theological writings and authors to read? Oh, Trent, I have to confess that my favorite non-theological writings are mysteries. And I, um, of course, I like the classics, Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie, uh, P.D. James also as a Christian. Um, some tremendous uh, insight. There's a couple, there's a new writer that actually Dr. Morales got me exposed to that has a, a detective. It's kind of late Victorian England. It's full of little cult. You learn a lot about the culture as well. Uh, and I, uh, Charles something, Finch, Charles Finch. And then I've discovered uh, a new writer lately, um, Todd something, who he and his mother are a pair of writers, and they've got a, a British detective during and after uh, World War One, and uh, you learn a lot about World War One through it. And this, it's a bit quirky. The detective's got a um, his conscience killed him because he had to kill uh, his Scottish uh, corporal who disobeyed direct orders, and just as he shot him. He didn't die. He was putting the gun to his head, and then a, uh, a friendly fire blew up the bunker. He was buried under the mud, and the face of the corporal is what saved him. Now the corporal it haunts him, so he's, he's like a, a, an alter ego. And so it's kind of shell shock. He hides it. He's back now in Scotland Yard. So it's, it's very, uh, very interesting, but the, the plots are quite quite good. So I enjoy mysteries, and next to mysteries, good spy uh, thrillers. And then I like um, you know, biographies, you know, even non-Christian biographies. But when I want to relax, it's usually a mystery or, or a spy thriller. Dr. Piper relaxes by having his heart beating faster, which is <laughs> funny. I don't know if you're asking. That's right, because my resting heartbeat, you know, is 59, so... Yeah, he knows. He's got Fitbit or whatever on his wrist. Um, I, uh, If you're asking me that question, Trent, I don't know. Maybe that was just geared towards Dr. Pipe. I don't think you specified. But if you're asking me my favorite things to read uh, that are non-theological works would be uh, history books and uh, political science books uh, at an academic or at least halfway between popular level and academic level, so thoughtful uh, political science, not partisan per se, one way or the other, but um, those are things I generally like to read. But I don't think he was asking. Yeah, Dr. Piper says, I don't think he was asking you, Zach. And I think Dr. Piper's probably right. But I, I honestly, I confess, I don't read a lot of uh, non theological works these days. Almost all of my reading is for seminary, other than, yeah, other than my devotional reading, which is theological in nature anyway. And what I am trying to do, and it, it sometimes I, I've always been a binge reader even back in, before I was converted. So I, will, I get an author I like, and it might be a whole series of sea stories. So I read through the Captain and Commander series, you know, completely straight through. Another one might be a, a Western, so I got hooked, and I would read, you know, 20 Louis L'Amour straight through. Um, and so I am a binge reader in that regard. But I try to discipline myself and get... So I want to read the, also the classics, uh, reading Dickens right now with a group of men, Christmas Carol... Uh, I enjoy uh, uh, Sir Walter Scott, the Waverly novels, uh, Jane Austen. So I try not to just read just the less serious stuff, but get back and, and read uh, better uh, literature as well. 
Very good. Well, that brings us up on our time for Confessing Our Hope. We still have a few questions on our list this month that will roll over to next month, but we're going to need more in order to fill up a whole hour, but also in order to continue serving you in this way. So please, if you have additional questions or follow-ups to any of these, send them in. You can email us at info at gpts.edu, contact us through Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram now, whatever is most convenient for you. If you really want, you can even call this seminary and leave your question with our volunteers at the front desk or get patched through the me, and I'll take your question live. But I really appreciate, um, we really appreciate the questions that have been submitted. They're always thoughtful and always helpful and very practical. And may God bless you in the, in the season ahead, and we look forward to being with you again in January. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for coming into the studio today. Thank you, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.